0: Um, God, thank you for the opportunity we've had to be together already, to celebrate together, to pray together, to hear from your word, to sing, to worship, to just be together. And God, as we um, transition just for the next few minutes uh, and we hear from your word, God, I pray that you would be at work in our hearts and minds that we would hear from you. Um, God, I I recognize that what I might have to say is of little importance, but God, what you would have to say is of great importance, and so, God, I pray that's what we would hear from this morning, that's what we would hear from you this morning, what what you would have us hear. God, I pray that you would be at work in our midst, pray that you would be at work in the midst of Redemption Kids, that your word, that your name would be proclaimed, that there would be great joy that comes from that and that you would be honored and glorified through it. God, it's in the name of your Son, Jesus, that I pray. Amen. So like I said, today is the first Sunday of Advent, and traditionally speaking, uh, Advent is the four Sundays and the corresponding weeks before Christmas Day. Not all churches uh, celebrate Advent liturgically. I I certainly grew up in churches as a child and as a teenager that did not. Um, And so... Beginning to celebrate Advent as an adult was a a whole new thing for me. Uh, But Advent is intended to be the season of preparation for Christmas and for the coming of Jesus. It's a time for uh, reenacting the anticipation of God's rescue of humanity, right? And remembering all of the Old Testament stories that point to Jesus, uh, recollecting the story of Jesus' birth. God coming to earth as a child to the ultimate realization of that rescue of God's um, rescue of humanity that will uh, ultimately uh, be realized when Jesus comes again and establishes a new heaven and a new earth, right? It's a time of expectation rather than fulfillment. Advent is a time of longing that hopefully leads to joy. Right, specific to, t- to today, the first Sunday of Advent is traditionally styled around the theme of hope. And specifically because we know how the story ends, we may find it difficult to wait with any sense of longing. It may be difficult for us to feel that hope in a new way all over again here at the beginning of December because we've heard the Christmas story all our lives, at least many of us have, and so it has the potential to feel rote and dull. We already know the glorious stories of Jesus' birth. We know the ultimate purpose of Jesus coming to earth, of God coming to earth as a baby, was ultimately for God to die. We know that Jesus has already conquered our greatest enemies with his death and resurrection. And so today we find ourselves in the tension of knowing what Jesus has done, what God has done, while also waiting for his second arrival. Where the world will be set to rights, where God's kingdom will be fully inaugurated on earth, and redemption and justice will prevail. Like God's people before the birth of Messiah Jesus, we are waiting. Living in a world beset with evil and injustice and poverty and sickness and death, we are waiting. But like Fleming Rutledge Rutledge says, we're waiting in the dark. But that's not where the story ends. We need not wait without hope Because our hope culminates in Jesus who stepped into the darkness and brought light. And even though many of us already know the story, even though we've heard it hundreds if not thousands of times, this story matters. The story of Jesus coming to earth as a baby matters. It means something. I once heard Um, The singer, songwriter, author Andrew Peterson say, if you want someone to know the truth, tell them. If you want someone to love the truth, tell them a story. Our stories have power, and the power of stories is somewhat unexplainable. The moment you start examining why a story means something to you, the power that story possesses seems to break down. Right? But we understand that stories are powerful. That realization is innate to most, if not every, culture. If you think about it, right, we are a society completely enthralled by stories, captivated and surrounded by stories. Right, Books, TV shows, movies, video games, songs, all these things showcase the power of story. But in the Advent season, we have an opportunity to stop For a moment, and realize that no story holds more significance or power or meaning than the story of God stepping into the world and the purpose of Jesus and changing everything. So, over the next few weeks here at Redemption, we'll be telling that story over and over again. This morning, specifically, we'll be looking at a component or part of that story from Luke chapter 1, verses 26 through 38. Luke chapter 1, verses 26 through 38. I'm going to read through that passage for us. It goes like this. In the six months, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth. To a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph, the house of David. Behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Like I mentioned earlier, this story probably feels pretty familiar Brent suggested before the service this morning that I reenact this story, playing both the part of Gabriel and Mary, but I declined to do so. That probably would have made it feel new to us all over again. Despite the fact that this feels very familiar to us, what we have in this passage from Luke chapter 1 seems like what some people might call a tall tale. A story with unbelievable elements. Right? We have an angel appearing to a, a teenage girl. A conception that comes about in a supernatural manner. The God of the universe becoming a baby inside Mary's womb. Right, In some ways, <clears throat> it's almost fantastical and absurd. But Luke here is telling us a story about a real God that came to earth. First as a vulnerable baby... He was historically connected to real people both before and after his birth. and That story affected people then and that story continues to do so today in very real ways. In fairy tales, in tall tales, people step outside of time and death in our world to make the story work. In tall tales, belief has to be suspended the laws of physics and nature have to be bent. Reality has to be skewed for the story to work. But in this story, in this story that some might call a true tall tale, Jesus steps into history. God steps into history. God acts to make the story work. So what I want to do this morning is just take a moment and acknowledge some of the uh, um, what might seem like tall tale components happening in the story before wrapping up by looking at Mary's response to the words of the angel. I think one of the most, just on that, I think one of the most understated parts of Scripture is the angel shows up and uh, Luke just says, right, which had to be terrifying. We know this had to be terrifying. But Luke just says, and Mary wondered what sort of greeting (laughs) this might be. Of course she did. Uh, I imagine it was terrifying, but what I want to do, like I said this moment, this morning, is just take a moment, look at some of the um, the supernatural aspects of the story, before looking at Mary's response to it. So first, the angel Gabriel appears to Mary and says, "Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you." Earlier in Luke chapter one, we didn't read this part of the story. The same angel. The angel Gabriel appears to Zechariah to tell him of John the Baptist's coming birth. And what we read, it it references Elizabeth's birth as a sign that what the angel is saying is true. And in some ways, Luke is using both of these birth announcements to say something specific about Jesus. But to Mary, the message that Gabriel brings is essentially this. You are going to supernaturally conceive a baby, that baby will be God himself, that baby will live forever, and that baby will be a king who sits on the throne of David forever, like God has been promising all along. This baby will be inaugurating God's kingdom on earth in a whole new way, like God has been promising all along. But did you know that in Luke chapter 1, this is actually not the first time That the angel Gabriel made an announcement about God's kingdom coming to earth. He actually made a very similar announcement to this hundreds of years prior to the time that he meets with Mary. Daniel chapter 9, the Old Testament hero Daniel finds himself in exile from his homeland. He's captive in Babylon and he's praying this incredible prayer if you go and you look at Daniel chapter 9 it is an incredible prayer he's pouring out his heart to God he's saying God we've been here in captivity we find ourselves in captivity because of our sin and our idolatry and our injustice we've turned away from you and God we deserve this we are reaping the curses of the covenant that you've made for us we deserve this discipline But at the same time, he's begging God to bring restoration and deliverance to his people and to Jerusalem. And he references God leading them out of Egypt so many years before. And like we do during Advent, Daniel is remembering what God had done for Israel and for God's people. And he's begging and longing with expectation and hope for God to do it Again. And he closes this prayer in chapter 9 of Daniel, starting in verse 16, by saying this O Lord, according to all your righteous acts, let your anger and your wrath turn away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy hill. Because for our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people have become a byword among all who are around us. Now, therefore, O our God, listen to the prayer of your servant. Delay not for your own sake, O my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. I love when Daniel says, For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. And he goes on and begs God to act. What happens next in Daniel chapter 9 is that the angel Gabriel shows up. The angel Gabriel gives this very, it's, it's a very complicated response to what Daniel is praying, and he talks about weeks and 70 times 7 on all these other things, but the gist of the answer that Gabriel brings to Daniel is this, you're going to still be in exile for a little while. Jerusalem is not going to be, re, be, be rebuilt right away, but eventually... There will be an anointed one that shows up in Jerusalem to establish God's kingdom once again. That's the promise that Abriel gives Daniel. God is going to establish his kingdom once again. You're going to stay right where you're at for a little while. Jerusalem's not going to look like it did before. But God is going to show up and act by by establishing his kingdom on earth. Fast forward several hundred years, the angel Gabriel is telling Mary that anointed one specifically referenced in Daniel chapter 9 as the anointed one, that king, he's going to be your child and he's going to be the son of God and you're going to be his mother. The hope that Daniel was holding on to, the hope that the angel Gabriel promised to Daniel Well, he's here now, and he's going to hold the throne of God's kingdom forever. And we see in verse 32 and 33 where Gabriel says, And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Gabriel tells Mary as well, that she's going to conceive and bear a son. And Mary asks, How can this be since I have not known a man? We read it as Mary saying, I'm a virgin. The way it reads in the original language is, I have not known a man. But um, over in Matthew, we're told that the virgin conception is ultimately the fulfillment of an Old Testament prophecy from Isaiah 7. Luke doesn't give us that detail. Luke just says, "The Gabriel says this, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called holy, the Son of God. Behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age is also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren for nothing will be impossible with God. The virgin birth is one of those things that is a stumbling block to a lot of people. Right? From the world of literature, there's criticism that the early believers were just stealing myths from other religions and cults and so forth. From the world of science, it doesn't make sense that Mary could become pregnant in this way, even from within the world of Christianity. There's a diminishing belief that the virgin birth actually matters one way or the other. The thing about that is that the virgin birth has mattered since the beginning of Christianity. And it actually still matters. The reality is this though. That on the other end of Jesus' life, we believe he was raised from the dead. And without the resurrection, our faith is absolutely in vain. Both of these aspects of Jesus' life are supernatural. Both of these aspects of Jesus' life are unbelievable. Both the virgin conception and the resurrection. And yet, that's exactly the point. The virgin birth, the resurrection of Jesus, these are the marks of God reaching into time and creation to act, to do something. This is God intervening in history to move His purposes and the purposes of His people forward. That's the point of the virgin conception. It's fully God becoming perfectly identified with humanity by becoming a baby. So that in His divinity and humanity, He might institute the kingdom that has no end. This is new creation breaking into the old. This is the beginning of the defeat of evil and death that culminates with the resurrection. Through his person and work, Jesus not only breaks the power of sin over the world, but Jesus brings reconciliation between God and humanity. Jesus makes the reconciliation of God and humanity possible. God condescending into humanity, becoming a vulnerable baby. Is God offering hope that we might once again be connected to God the way that God intended all along? Those two elements of this story, the angel appearing to Mary, the virgin conception, they seem unbelievable, they seem fantastical. They are without a doubt supernatural. They might be a stumbling block to some, like I said, but it's exactly the purpose of why it exists, to show that God is intervening and acting and doing something that He had promised all those years before, just like He did to Daniel. And God intervening to act in such a way that He might be connected with humanity the way that God always intended. All right, so with those two elements of this, what I will call true tall tale, briefly examined, I want to move on and look at Mary's response to the words of the angel. What we see in Mary's response, I think, are two things. We see healthy doubt, and we see careful surrender. Healthy doubt. When the angel says to Mary, you're going to conceive and bear a son, she asks, how can this be? Since I have not known a man. She has the same reaction we all do. How can this be? How can a virgin conceive? It's the same question we all ask. But what's interesting about this response that Mary has is that earlier in Luke chapter 1, when the angel Gabriel shows up and tells Zechariah that his wife is going to bear a son in her old age, Zachariah actually doubted whether or not his elderly wife, Elizabeth, would conceive John the Baptist. And for that doubting, Zachariah actually gets in trouble. The next story we have here, Mary doesn't. Right? You see, I think what's going on here is that there's a kind of doubt that grows out of disbelief, that is proud and defiant, It looks inward at itself in bitterness and says to God, this can't be true. Maybe that's what Zechariah was doing. But also, there's a kind of doubt that grows out of a humble wonder. It stares upward with awe and says, I don't understand, God. Help me see how this can be. I don't understand, God. Help me see how this can be true. And I think... That was Mary. Tim Keller, when talking about this passage, calls this the difference between dishonest doubt and honest doubt. He says that dishonest doubt is proud and lazy. It responds to God's revelation by saying that's impossible or that's just silly and then walks away. Those statements are not arguments. They're just assertions where we refuse to consider anything beyond our limited understanding. By by contrast, honest doubts are humble because they lead us to ask genuine questions and not just put up a defiant wall. When you ask a real question, it actually puts you in a position of humility and vulnerability. Because if you ask a real question and God gives you an answer, what are you going to do with it? What if that answer contradicts you? What if that answer contradicts and shatters your categories and your understanding of the way that things are or demands things from you that you are not ready to give. But honest doubts are open to belief. Honest doubts are doubts where we are open to doubting our doubts as much as we are open to doubting what is unbelievable. You see, if we're really willing to ask God from a place of humble doubt, for insight into who he is and what he does he just might give it to you look at what the angel says in verse 37 in response to Mary's question as to how can this be look at what the angel says for nothing will be impossible with god how much hope is there to be found in that statement That is a boundless and unending promise from God. For nothing will be impossible with God. There is no end to that promise. It cannot be contained. And the only reason Mary gets that answer is because she asks the question, how can this be? So this morning, I'm actually coming to you and begging you to ask God, Your doubting questions. But if you're going to do that, I'm encouraging you to be open to what he has to say in response. Mary moves on from this place of healthy doubt and she moves to a point of careful surrender. Look at what she says in verse 38. Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to To your word. Mary's response is ultimately the response we must all make to the inbreaking of God's kingdom. Mary surrenders herself to both the blessing and the hardship that mothering the incarnate son of God would bring. Right, immediately in a society that demanded sexual purity, people would see Mary as less than that because of this conception. And even in the midst of this glorious birth of her child, she doesn't even get to pick the child's name. Because God was calling the shots, right? God interrupted Mary's life. God broke into Mary's own plan for things. Whatever she and Joseph had planned, God stepped in and changed that. God interrupted the course of Mary's life, even though she didn't ask for this. But the result of this interruption is Mary surrendering herself to God's plan. And even as she surrenders herself to the will of God, she is surrendering herself to witnessing the horrors of the cross and all that was going to come Jesus' way. At the same time, based on the song that Mary sings in verses 46 through 55, which is absolutely, probably my favorite verses in all of Scripture, Mary already knew that God was fulfilling everything He ever promised His people through the birth of this child. The hope of Israel, the hope of the world was coming true through the child in her womb. Mary knew that the story was so much bigger than anything ever imagined. So much bigger than her own comfort and joy and her own plans. She knew that the story was cosmic in size and she surrendered herself to the kingdom of God. I've even heard some call Mary the very first Christian because of this surrender to God's plan. Mary's humility and willingness to surrender to God's plan is a powerful lesson for us to give up our own wants and to follow God's will even when we don't know where it will lead. Mary's response to the message of the angel in this passage That's the call for us this morning. It's a call to see the hope that God promises. To maybe doubt with an open heart, but ultimately to find peace and hope in what God promises and to plant ourselves firmly in that hope. As the first Sunday of Advent, like I mentioned earlier, we are... um, Advent is traditionally styled around the theme of hope for this Sunday. The call for us this morning is simply to see that hope that God promises, to plant ourselves firmly in that hope by surrendering to the call of God on our lives, by surrendering to be a part of God's kingdom. Over the next few minutes as we enter into a time of response, I ask that you would actually consider that call. Whatever it is that you may be doubting, bring it to God with an open heart, waiting for God to answer. And inasmuch as we may be doubting, God is calling us this morning to, to, like Mary, to surrender to what God has for us. That's our call this morning. So we move into a time of response in a moment, going to help facilitate communion. You're invited to come down this middle aisle and take the bread dip it in the wine or juice or take the prepackaged cup. And so remember the body of Christ that was given for us and the blood of Christ that was shed for us. That's why God came to earth. That's why God came to earth as Jesus, for those purposes. So I would invite you this morning, if you can remember what God has done, if you can proclaim to one another that it's true and that you believe it, I would invite you to come and take communion. I would invite you to consider the things that we need to consider the call of God upon our lives this morning. And I pray ultimately and hope that whatever God is saying to you that you would hear and respond. Let's pray and we'll move on with that time of response. God, thank you this